G'day Swillians, Deadly here. How did you go? How was Christmas? Did you ruin Christmas Day by getting hammered on Chrissy Eve? Man, I don't know how many Chrissy days I ruined getting smashed the night before with mates at Brunt's Pub, but in my 20s, it was a fair few. Did you manage to keep a lid on it? Did you show up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed on Chrissy morning for your mum, or your dad, or your fam, or whoever loved one you spent it with? Or were you just a shriveled, burnout carcass with a couple of piss holes in the snow where your eyeballs used to be. Well, whatever shape you were in, just remember that Santa died on the cross so that you could have a guilt-free holiday and uh, spend all your hard-earned on Chinese plastic that'll be landfill before the end of the first week of the new year. Happy Christmas. Now, nah, look, uh, I hope the get-togethers were hassle-free. Full of chill time, uh, and if they were shit, then I hope you told your racist uncle or sour old auntie or whoever it was trying to ruin your fun to shove a big old Christmas hand bone right up their corn. Uh, for those based in the Commonwealth cricket, you beauty. What an Ashes series. Thank you very much, Pat Cummins. See you at the Australian of the Year ceremony in January, mate. You've got it in the bag already. Uh, for everyone else from all around the world, hope you had an absolute blinder. And if you're not into celebrating anything at this time of year, well, good on you as well. Good for you. Do what you want. Be yourself. It's all good with me, mate. No judgment here. A uh, bit of housekeeping. Let's see. Uh, a couple of pipe wins there for John John. Something like his 98th consecutive win in Hawaii. Well done, old neckbeard. You're doing wonderful things over there. And Moana Jones gets the first of what will probably be many pipe titles at the HIC. Q1000. Grind away. Grindy, grindy, grind. Uh, me and Smithy will be back soon to go through this uh, whole digi crown that's going on. A uh, little bit of controversy, as the great Rabs Warren might say, in terms of uh, the, the Triple Crown being a, uh, a clip comp these days. But I don't know, I'm for it. But we'll get into that later. Uh, today, I'm here to bring you my first instalment of the greatest surf stories never told. Uh, Smith has obviously released a few of these, and as you'd expect from a two-time gold cone piece award winner, and uh, the man who penned five of the top ten articles on Stab Premium in 2021, on Fuego, Smithy, absolutely ripping. Congratulations on that one, mate. But uh, yeah, you know, Smithy's uh, best surf stories never told have been... Exactly what you'd expect. Just incredible insights into some of Smivy's life as a travelling journo, as well as a look into some of the great personalities and favourite characters that he's met and had the uh, pleasure to sit down with and get to know over the years. And there'll be a lot more to come. I guess I just want to precursor my offering in this space by saying that I've never really considered myself to be a journalist. Uh, when I first started working on surf mags about a week after my 17th birthday, um, hard-hitting st- 
journalism in surf print was really pretty like non-existent other than uh, by a rare few. Uh, there was plenty of gonzo journos and, and people writing really good stuff, but it was really only Nick Carroll and Kirky Wilcox and maybe a couple of others who were true newspaper men who'd, who'd come over from the broadsheets and, and brought that commitment to going deep and digging it up and getting to the truth and, you know, really reporting on what was going on. Um, but, yeah, mostly it was uh, just a lot of colour and a lot of fun and a lot of uh, other stuff that appealed to me. And my favourite surf riders from those early years when I was at tracks are guys like Neil Ridgway, absolutely hilarious, DC Green, Tim Baker, Andrew Kidman was huge, and Brissick, who he'd brought in as well, Jamie Brissick. And then later, when he came to work at the office, Sean Doherty, obviously uh, a lot of fun. Uh, there was a lot of really great riders, but the, the thing that I tapped into most with those guys was just this sort of stoke and storytelling bent with humour and freedom. Freedom was a big one. They just wrote with uh, a lot of, I don't know, enjoyment for the craft, I suppose. And uh, that really connected with me. Uh, to give you a bit of an example of one of my all-time favourite surf mag stories, it was only about sort of 500, 700 words, which is, you know, is kind of a half surf mag page. And it was when Kidman was editing Waves. And I remember he... He wrote a story about he and John Frank driving up to Newcastle to interview the underground core lord goofy icon Chad Edser. And they were supposed to meet him in the car park, but he wasn't there when they arrived, so they went surfing instead. And while they were surfing, they saw Chad sort of skip out along the rocks and stand on the edge of this jump rock. And uh, so they kept surfing, and they just thought they'd say g'day when he paddled out and tee up the interview back on land. But... He never paddled out. And so Kidman and Frank went in and they went back to the car park and they looked out to the jump rock and Edson was still there. He hadn't moved. And after a while, uh, they just got sick of waiting. And so they jumped in the car and drove the two hours back to Sydney. And Kidman wrote the story and his last line went something like, so in the end, we really didn't get to know much about Edson at all other than he likes to stand on rocks. And he likes to stand on rocks for a very long time. And man, that kind of absurdity just really summed up what made surf culture something I just loved so much. Because when you think about it, we're all just fucking weirdos, man. And we're doing weird shit. And I love that about surfing. And I guess that's what I've been interested in writing about for the past 30 odd years. You know, just those little tiny moments and, and things that we can all kind of connect with and relate to and yeah i don't know it's just that's that's sort of like the storytelling that i love um so this will be a little change of pace from smith's usual offerings on the show and it's it's not as long but to give the following story some context uh just wanted to explain that this was my second ever edition as editor of of surfing world sorry um it was the intro and yeah, this was my second run at uh, a, a sort of a long-term role as the position of editor. I'd done Waves Magazine for 10 years, which was uh, basically Grom Tripe served up by the advertisers. Awesome times. Don't get me wrong, there was some good stuff came out of there, but most of it was shit. I can admit that. So yeah, after having two kids and a big break, I came back. I, I 
I had a goal. I wanted to make meaningful mags. The internet hadn't quite kicked in yet as far as sort of taking over and demolishing print. So we felt like we were in a good place. And uh, yeah, Surfing World got a bit of investment. I joined the team where I reconnected with uh, an old mate of mine, Matty G, who was the art director of Tracks when I was 17. So we had a good working relationship. And, and Matty G was a powerful force, man. For fans of like doped youth, he was the guy who wrote and performed Kimono and Nasty B. Check him out if you haven't seen him with his bands, uh, Tadatek and Nice. But we had an epic working relationship. And this mag was actually just completely built from scratch in his apartment, looking down over Newport Reef and this freak of nature called Crosswaves, which I'll put a shot up on the gram for you to check out. But yeah, just made in a little apartment in the oldest and coolest tradition of DIY backyard surf mag culture, the very same sort of thing that that started Surfing World in the first place back in 1962. And then later on, 10 years later, Tracks Magazine as well. All just originally built out of these tiny little Northern Beaches shitholes, basically. But me and Smith, uh, sorry, me and uh, Matty G had an awesome time making the mag from his little apartment. And yeah, this was the first intro. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, there was one little footnote to this story uh, when it did come out. I remember getting a phone call from the Grandmaster himself, Gamote Bob Bain, uh, to let me know that he cried with laughter when he read this story. And uh, to me, it was one of the great compliments that I've ever had in my life because Bainey was a childhood hero. And uh, yeah, I just fucking, that's why I picked it out for you guys to hear as you make your way up or down the coast with the family this holiday season. So, on behalf of me and Smivy, I'd just like to say thanks to all Swellians for listening in 2021. Be safe, be kind to yourself and others, and for fuck's sakes, go surfing. You're a Swellian, that's what you do. The Tale of Alfie and the Alvy. All the old boy ever wanted was an Alvy. The most basic of beach fishing reels, it can be operated by a blind, thumbless gibbon without straining too many brain cells. He wanted the Alvy so that when the surf was crap, he could take us kids up to the rocks at Salido, get our hand lines into the water, then cast the line himself and enjoy that rare moment of contentment that a father must feel when there genuinely isn't a care in the world. Oh, you fucking river. But for some reason... When Alfie went into the store to buy the Alvy, a mate of his convinced him to fork out top dollar for some elaborate-looking egg beater reel instead. Yeah, get this one, no, mate. I don't want it, nah, mate. get this no, one. No, no this one's way better, mate. mate. I don't I get an Alvy. Get this one, mate. Nah, it's fucking way better, mate. All right, all right. Come on, mate. All right, all right. Get the fucking thing. Jeez. Yeah, no. Good call, mate. You won't be sorry. Fair dinkum. The thing had more bells and whistles than Torquay at Easter. And the second I saw it, I was worried. You see... It was a fiddly device, and while the old man prided himself on having the hands of a surgeon, when fiddly stuff started getting the better of him, it usually didn't last too long. Alfie didn't seem wholly convinced by this purchase either. Why the fuck did I buy this thing? I should have just got an Alfie. But it was too late to go back. 
And a couple of weeks later, we went camping. My family has always been huge on camping. Mum had taken us camping from Broken Head to Kailoa when we were kids, and likewise the old man from Noosa to Foster. It was simply what was done in the holidays for psych groms like us. Holidays that guaranteed endless hours in the water just didn't get any better. Epic sessions at random back beaches, weird little reefs, small nameless break walls and sharky river mouths were ample reward for enduring the long hot drives, the missing tent pegs, rolling over onto the side of your tent on a wet night, waking up soaked and freezing at three in the morning. And of course, the inevitable massive domestic spats. Hey darling, did you pack the tomato sauce? No, why would I pack it? Why would I pack it? Why would you I said pack you were going to pack it. You said you were going to pack it. Why would I fucking pack it? Why do I always have to pack the sauce? Just pack the fucking sauce! And the pleasures out of the surf were simple and many. Like Rosella's eating seed out of your hair. So or Goanna's racing through the campfire site to steal a sausage that had fallen off the hot plate. Oh, you thieving little cunt. Games of foursomes back. Oh, good one. It's stuck in the tree, you dickhead. Lighting the fire in the evening and getting the still smouldering coals relit the next morning without matches. Chasing kangaroos down the bush track onto the beach. None of it seemed all that unusual or extraordinary. If anything... It felt as much a part of the Australian surfing ritual as waxing your board and pissing in your wedding. But dramas were a daily occurrence, and mostly for the one bloke whose sole objective was to enjoy just a snippet of peace and quiet for once. Dad took it pretty personally when things didn't stay true to the master plan. Over the years, I saw him punch the skin off his knuckles on a tree trunk when we got bogged in the sand checking a remote beachy. He dislocated his fingers on a shallow sandbank after nosediving on the first wave of the holidays. And I saw him rip a half-built tent out of the ground and hurl it into the bushes, unable to complete it before dark because the instructions were written in Chinese. Jump in the car, boys, he told us. We're staying in a fucking motel tonight. Camping can go and get rooted. But none of those hold a candle to my all-time favourite camping story with Dad. The story of Alfie and the Alvy. We'd been going to Salido for three or four years by then, and each trip had topped the year before. The surf had never let us down, and this particular campout was no different. We'd enjoyed days of shoulder-high wedging pits before the northlies kicked the guts out of the swell and the ocean finally went an oily calm. Time to go fishing. It was just on dusk one arvo when the old man took us up to the point. We found our spot on the rocks that looked into a nice deep hole. And within minutes, we were watching our sinkers and bait disappear into the shadows below. With us kids all set up, the old man set about getting his flashy new egg beater up and running. But he'd barely had time to get it out of the box before, bang! My brother's handline began spinning like the head of a brush cutter. And a moment later, whack! I was on too. And then, wouldn't you know it, my littlest brother, who absolutely hated fishing, well, he'd hooked on as well. We reeled him in, screaming with laughter, and at first, the old boy was delighted. It was a mixed haul, leather jacket, a brim, a little shovel-nosed shark, and no sooner had we cut him loose and got the lines back in the water, were we on again, all three of us. By the time we'd cut these fish free, the old man had still not managed to thread his line through the first guide on his rod, and I could sense the tone of the afternoon was about to change. It was at this stage I noticed the old boy's face. His complexion. It wasn't red. 
It was beetroot purple. A glowing, psychotic boiling pot of anger, frustration and pure hatred for the gimmicky device that was ruining his arvo. Regardless, we kept fishing and kept on catching them. The haul was relentless. By the time we'd landed our 18th fish of the arvo with half a dozen decent keepers, I decided to chance a look at how the old man was faring. He was not faring well. Too scared to catch his eye, I quickly turned my attention back to the sea, just in time to hear him scream. Why didn't I just get the fucking army? The next thing I saw was 800 bucks worth of steel and plastic flying several different directions at once. No doubt the result of a point-blank collision with the rocks. Then, I watched what was left of the reel fly over my shoulder and out towards the horizon. It plonked into the sea and unceremoniously disappeared into the depths below, having never known the thrill of catching a fish. When I eventually gathered the courage to turn around, I was greeted with the tragic sight of the old man sitting there on his haunches, head buried in the palm of his hands. He'd been utterly defeated. He sensed me, and he looked up, and for a moment, we caught each other's gaze. Why fucking bother? He asked. How could he have known at that moment? He just answered his own question. <laughs>